0: Like many of you, when I was very young, I prayed and asked Jesus to come into my heart. You know, the quote unquote sinner's prayer. I had a basic understanding of who Jesus was and what he did on the cross and how he rose from the dead. I had a basic understanding of things like sin, heaven, hell. And every week I I heard the gospel at our church in big church and in Sunday school and in children's church. And there was a A heavy influence, even a pressure to ask Jesus into your heart so that you can be saved, so that you won't go to hell when you die. And so I did that. I asked Jesus into my heart. I didn't want to go to hell when I died. And then like a week later, my parents wanted me to be baptized in the big church service, so I was. I was around four years old. I was very young. And then, right after that, My world got rocked. I mean, devastated. My mother got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and she died when I was five years old. Right after that, my father remarried a woman he should have never married. And I ended up growing up in a pretty dysfunctional and abusive home where I drifted further and further away from God. I was doing a lot of sinful things that I'm very ashamed of and I regret. As I entered high school, my inner man wasn't getting better. He was getting worse. I was getting into more sin and worse sin. There's so much dark stuff going on in my heart. But this one day during my junior year of high school, we had a guest speaker who came to our weekly chapel service and his name was Rick Gage and God used Rick Gage and his message on that day to wake me up to the fact that even though I asked Jesus in my heart at a young age and even though I kept asking Jesus in my heart thousands of times growing up in case it didn't take you know the first time or the 800th time and even though I'd been baptized twice God used Rick Gage and his message to wake me up to the fact that I wasn't the real deal. I wasn't truly saved. My life didn't look anything like a Christian life should look. I didn't really care about God, the Bible, prayer, worship. I definitely didn't care about living holy. I didn't care about sharing my faith with lost people because they're going to die and go to hell and I need to go help them no i didn't care about that i didn't care about loving others the way i love myself you know christianity 101 i didn't care about that i cared about me that's it and that's all my king was jason my lord was jason my will my desires my pleasures my gratification me 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 so selfie, you know what I'm saying? But on that day in that chapel service, I'm telling you, God used evangelist Rick Gage to wake me up. I mean, God supernaturally drew me to himself. I had heard the gospel my whole life, hundreds, maybe thousands of times. But on that day, it was different, man. There was something more going on than. Just another guy telling me who Jesus is and what he's done. God woke me up that day. And it was nothing that I sought after or wanted. It came out of nowhere. It was this inner pull, this this drawing to God inside of my heart. I knew God was directly speaking to me. The gospel wrecked my life on that day. But it also gave me A new life on that day, dude, I became a new creation in Christ and I began to genuinely follow Jesus as the Lord of my life. Now, did I do it perfectly? (laughs) Dude, heck no. Of course not. I still don't. But I know this. I'm not the man I used to be. Change has taken place. And I can't take the credit for that. It is God who began that good work in me on that day in that chapel service when Rick Gage was bringing that powerful message. And it is God who continues that work in me, and he will complete it. So this guy, Rick Gage, he's always been a pretty special person to me. He didn't save me. Christ saved me. But Rick Gage was the one whom God used to bring the powerful truth of the gospel to me. He's the one whom God used to wake me up and show me that even though I prayed the sinner's prayer a thousand times, and even though I'd been baptized twice, even though I'd gone to church my whole life, even though I knew tons of Bible verses by heart, lots of theology, even though I attended a Christian high school, I was lost. I was spiritually dead before God. I was on my way to hell I professed Jesus as Lord with my mouth you know like I said yeah I'm a Christian but my life man that said something totally different you want to know what my, my, my life said this Jason was Lord his longings his desires his gratification his glory his will not God's not Jesus So what I'm about to share with you comes from Rick Gage's father, Freddie Gage. Freddie Gage was also a very popular and powerful evangelist in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And he gave this specific sermon that I'm going to share with you that's entitled, All My Friends Are Dead. He gave it over 2,000 times, resulting in approximately one hundred thousand decisions for christ it is extremely sobering and good for all of us to hear it is story after story of people who kept putting god off hearing the gospel but saying again and again and again i'm not ready i'm not ready i'll do that later i'll do that tomorrow next week there's some things i want to do in life first But then it was too late. It was too late. Death. And then hell. So here we go. Central Baptist Church, where she now knelt at the altar, a broken woman. We told her, you haven't committed the unpardonable sin. But she said, you don't understand. I've murdered three innocent unborn babies. God will forgive you, I insisted. He will change your life. Jesus Christ will set you free. Tragically, we never convinced her. She left the church without Christ in her heart. A few weeks later, we received a newspaper clipping, which said that she had gone to a third-rate motel, taken a pistol, put it to her head, and blew her brains out. Her father was a millionaire, but it just wasn't enough to keep her satisfied. Sin. Sin. It always thrills at first, and then it kills It fascinates and then it assassinates. It's the one game you can never win, the sin game. In New York City, I preached one night and down the aisle came a young man who knelt at the altar, Bible in his hand. He motioned for me to come talk with him, so I did. As I knelt beside him, he said, God won't forgive me. I'm a homosexual, a sex pervert. God can't save me. I've committed the unpardonable sin. I told him. God can make you a new creature. Listen, there will be no homosexuals in heaven, but I've seen homosexuals completely transformed by Jesus Christ. God changed their lives. Homosexuality is not the unpardonable sin. It isn't murder or adultery or prostitution. But what is it then? It's not gambling. A friend of mine in Houston lost his entire fortune through gambling. Ten years ago, he was a multimillionaire. Today, he's bankrupt because of his gambling. But the unpardonable sin is not gambling. Jesus declared that there is a sin you can commit for which you can never be forgiven. He said it is possible to commit a sin that cannot be pardoned in this world or in the world to come. The mere thought makes me shudder. It makes cold sweat break out on my body. It brings before my vision, screaming, damned men and women. I can see their horrified faces and the hopeless condition of their souls. I can see something of what Jesus meant when he said, they shall never be forgiven. In Genesis 6, 3, God said, my spirit shall not always strive with man. I have looked into the faces of hundreds who thought they had stepped over God's deadline. On each one was an unforgettable look of agony, despondency, utter helplessness, and distress. It is the most tragic sight I have ever imagined seeing. And I've seen hundreds doomed by the unpardonable sin. You know, we call things unpardonable because we judge them from human standpoints. These same things, when looked at through God's eyes of infinite mercy and love, are not unpardonable at all. They fall well within the great scope of his mercy and grace. But there comes a time when God says, I've had enough. God is a God of love, and he is a God of patience. But the Apostle Paul spoke of a man that God had, quote unquote, given up. Felix, Festus, and Agrippa all stepped across God's deadline. In the first chapter of Romans, we find these words repeated three times. And God gave them up. And God gave them up. And God gave them up. Could these verses be any clearer? One of the first revival meetings That I ever preached was at Faith Memorial Baptist Church in Houston. I had been saved only five months. I remember walking onto the platform to preach and seeing how people had filled the building. Some had come to the church as early as 5.30 p.m., and still there were people who could not get into the auditorium. When I walked into that service, I felt the power of the Holy Spirit. I sat down and I said to the pastor, Hey, look, there's one of my friends. His name was Donnie Patton, and sitting next to him was a young girl named Patricia, whom we called Patty. I noticed in the balcony there were other friends of mine from the streets. They had come to hear me preach. I preached my heart out that night. When the invitation was given, I walked to the back of the building. I took hold of Donnie's hand. He was shaking because of the tremendous conviction he felt from God. I said, Donnie, man... Donnie, give your heart to Jesus. But he kept holding on to the back of the seat and simply said, I'm not ready. I looked over at Patty and I asked, Will you give your heart to Jesus? She said, I will if Donnie will. But Donnie just said, Man, I'm not ready. How many times have I heard the words, I'm not ready. Probably thousands. How many times have you said them? Listen, the truth is that we have to be ready to meet God. We have no choice. I was staying the night in the home of a high school principal. I told him Donnie had been in the service and he said, yeah, I know. I continued and said, Hey, I tried to reach him for Jesus, but he kept saying he wasn't ready. You see, years before, the principal had expelled Donnie from campus for stabbing a young man over drugs. The next morning, I spoke at two schools, but all I could think of was my friend Donnie. I asked the pastor to take me to Donnie's house after lunch. That afternoon, I walked up the steps, I knocked on the door, and Donnie's mom, Mrs. Patton, came to the door. She was crying. Oh, Freddie. Freddie, come in. She threw her arms around me. Across the room, I could see Donnie's grandmother. She was crying too. Where's Donnie? I asked. He's in the bathroom. He's doing dope. I walked straight to the bathroom. I saw Donnie sitting with a syringe, a hypodermic needle, burnt spoon, and a bottle of dope. He boiled it down. And he was shooting it up. Donnie, man, Donnie, there's a better way. Listen, Donnie, you don't have to do this. You can be a new creation in Christ. You can be a new man. He rolled his sleeve down. And I noticed blood dripping down his arm. He put up the syringe and. He came in, he sat on the couch in the living room. I got on my knees. I looked into his face and I took my Bible and I read 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. The old things pass away. Behold, new things come. Tears streamed down my cheeks. I said, Donnie, you need God. He looked at me and said I'm coming to the church meeting tonight I got over 40 people committed to come with me But I'm not ready I'm not ready to turn my life over to God yet Donnie had been running drugs illegally for some time And he fully believed that he was trapped He thought that there was no way out for him And that night Donnie was true to his word. He brought about 40 young people with him, including the 23-year-old daughter of a prominent law enforcement officer. She was a drug addict. I preached with everything I had that night. Many of the young people came to Christ, including one young man who is now pastoring a Baptist church in Houston. After the sermon, I walked back to Donnie once again. I grabbed his hand, but he just said, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. I could really feel the power of God and the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon that service. But Donnie stayed in his seat and he just kept saying, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. He left the service without Christ. The pastor ended up baptizing 144 people following that revival. But Donnie wasn't one of them. I closed that meeting on Sunday afternoon and then I flew to Waco, Texas to begin another revival at the Emanuel Baptist Church. And that night, a young man, an All-American from Baylor University, he got right with God. Another young man, who is a well-known evangelist today, recommitted his life to God. But somehow, my mind was not on that meeting. All I could think about were my friends in Houston, especially Donnie Patton. On Tuesday morning, the pastor told me I had an emergency telephone call from Houston. At the other end of the line was Donnie's mom, Mrs. Patton, and she was crying. Donnie was found at four this morning by my brother in the city park, she said. He was slumped over the steering wheel of an automobile. The front page of the Houston Chronicle read, son dies, mom mourns, pusher goes free. Mrs. Patton asked if I would preach Donnie's funeral. So I flew back to Houston. It was a very sad time. But I was able to lead 22 of Donnie's friends to Jesus as we stood around his coffin. One young man who served as a pallbearer was named Tracy Reed. As he walked away, he took his hand off the coffin, turned and said to me, hey, man, when I get it, come and preach my funeral. It was no joke. He was serious. Following the service, many of Donnie's friends got on their knees and asked Jesus to save them, right inside the tent at the cemetery. Some of them, they're preaching today. Most of them were drug addicts. But Tracy stood out in that cemetery, and he wept over the loss of his friend. Two weeks later, I went to North Hill Baptist Church in Houston. And as I looked out into the audience, I saw Tracy Reed with a young girl named Jenny Wynn, who had also been one of my friends. Sitting on the other side of Tracy was his attorney, a prominent Houston lawyer. Again, I preached with everything I had. At the invitation, the pastor was counseling some people who had responded to God's call. I told him that one of my friends was in the back of the church And I asked if he would go talk with him about Jesus. As I watched him share the gospel with Tracy, I could see Tracy shaking his head and just saying, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. At the conclusion of the service, I took Tracy, Jenny and the attorney into a room where I shared the Bible until two o'clock that afternoon. But all the while, Tracy just kept saying, I'm not ready, man. I'm just not ready. Tracy was a panderer, or what's called a pimp, and he was into drugs. And Jenny, Jenny was a prostitute. Over and over he said, not today, not today, I'm not ready. Have you ever said those words to God, the creator of the universe? God who spoke the world into existence, who put the sun and the moon and the stars into the sky? God who gives you air to breathe? who at this very moment is giving you life? Have you ever told this great God, I'm not ready? The very fact that your heart is pumping blood is only because of God's mercies. Maybe like Tracy, you've told God you aren't ready yet. Maybe you've said something like this, God, when I've done my thing, when I've sown my wild oats, then I'll be saved. But my friend, it doesn't work that way. You can come to God only when the Holy Spirit draws you. The Bible says in John six forty four, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draws him. A few days later, Tracy Reed walked across the lot of the Sanders Ford Company on the Gulf Freeway to Galveston. A young man named Fred Dunlap jumped out of a pickup truck with a sawed-off shotgun and he shot Tracy in the back of the head. He literally blew his head off. Fred Dunlap is now serving a life sentence in the Huntsville State Penitentiary. I preached Tracy's funeral. I kept the promise I made to him. The headlines of the Houston press told the tragic story of Tracy Reed. And I kept hearing him say, I'm just not ready yet. Another man by the name of Benny Lyles attended Tracy's funeral. Benny and I went to school together as kids. I begged Benny to give his heart and life to Christ. In a high school auditorium in Texas City, I was preaching and my heart became so burdened. That night, a reporter from the Galveston Daily had come to the service to interview me, but I had forgotten all about it. I was supposed to speak to the young people on a special service at the First Baptist Church, but I forgot about that too. All I could think about was my friend, Benny Lyles. I wanted to win him to Jesus. I tried so hard to win him to the Lord. I gave him a new Bible and I wrote in the front of it, the Bible will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from the Bible. I heard an evangelist say that. And I firmly believed it. Benny told me, I'm coming back Saturday night to hear you tell your life story. When he went home, he told his mother, who was a member of the Calvary Baptist Church in Houston. Saturday night, I want you to go to Texas City with me. I want to hear Freddie Gage. He's going to tell his life story. His mother was thrilled. Benny got their family Bible and they read it together. He had been in all kinds of trouble with drugs. He was a pimp. And he lived in sin for years. Now his mother thought there was hope. For the first time, there's hope. She told the people in her church that Benny was going to the revival meeting. She called the pastor and asked him to pray that God would speak to Benny's heart. Saturday night came. And Benny's mother waited for him to show up. She waited. She waited. She waited. And then the news came. That her son had been found in a lounge. Benny had pulled a switchblade knife on a young man and stabbed him. The bartender went to the cash register, got his pistol, and he shot Benny three times in the head. Benny dropped to the floor and he died in a puddle of blood. Now it was too late for Benny. Galatians 6 7 says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. I preached Benny's funeral with the help of a young evangelist named James Robison. A lady sang the song, if I could live my life over. And I felt totally broken. I had known Benny for years, but now he was gone. I firmly believe he waited too long and stepped across God's deadline. I believe God gave him up to sin and finally he took Benny's life. Tracy's friend, Jenny Wynn, died a few weeks later in a car wreck near Galveston. She was the same young lady who said, I'll go if Tracy goes. She flipped a Corvette over and had the right side of her face totally torn off. She had been high on drugs and booze. When I arrived, I asked the funeral director if I could see Jenny. He opened the coffin lid, and I saw that her hair was pulled all over her face. Because the entire right side of her face was completely gone. Jenny had been one of the most beautiful girls I had ever known. Her appearance was so bad after that wreck that the coffin remained closed during the funeral. A joint, some more drugs, a little booze. It took her life. You can't beat the sin game. The Bible says in Romans 6:23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And again, in Ezekiel 18:4, the Bible says, the soul who sins will die. I will never forget Jenny's little nine-year-old daughter asking me at the cemetery, Freddie, did my mommy go to heaven? Some of you are going to have friends and family who ask that same question concerning you. Did you go to heaven? Dear friend, the only way you will ever go to heaven is to come by the way of the cross. You have to come to Christ. You have to come to that quote-unquote fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath the flood, lose all their guilty stains. Who are you to tell God you're not ready to commit your life to Him? There are some of you whom God has been calling because of a praying mother or a praying friend. He's been calling you through a Christian at the office where you work. He's been calling you through your pastor. He's been calling you through gospel preachers on television. He's been calling you through some great church. He's been calling you from your sick bed, from the hospital, from an automobile wreck, or from a motorcycle accident. He's been calling you while you watch Billy Graham one night in a hotel room. He's been calling you through a Gideon Bible or some gospel tract that someone gave you. He's been calling you through a sermon that you heard on the radio. There's hardly a person in this society who hasn't had an opportunity at some point to be saved. Remember the passage in Proverbs chapter one, verses 24 through 29 where God says, Because I have called, and you refused, I have stretched out my hand, and no man regarded, but you have set at naught all my counsel, and would have none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh. When your fear cometh as desolation, and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind, then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. For they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. The Bible says there is a deadline. I understand that if you take a piece of clay and you keep working with it, eventually it just becomes hard and unmanageable. Are you like that? Hardened to the gospel? I'm told after a man reaches the age of 30, he has one chance in a thousand to come to Christ. Somehow it doesn't seem that important to him anymore. Recently in Indianapolis, Indiana, a lady who was 100 years old was saved in a crusade where I was preaching. She was an exception. God has let me see half a million people walk the aisle to make some kind of decision for God, and a quarter of a million people accept Jesus into their hearts. But I've seen only a few people with gray hair come forward. For some of you, there was a time when you went to church and sobbed openly over your soul. But nothing moves you anymore. Some of you, you can't even cry at a funeral. There are some of you that God is speaking to for the last time. If you don't give him your life now, you will never be saved. You may be a church member somewhere, but that doesn't matter. The new birth is a matter of surrendering your heart, mind, and body completely to God. We recently had a revival meeting in our church where Pastor Bailey Smith preached. In that revival meeting, two Baptist preachers were saved. Over 200 church members were saved. Deacons were saved. Church leaders were saved. One evangelist was saved. Do you know for sure that you're saved? You can commit the unpardonable sin of rejecting Christ just as easily while singing in the choir at your church as you can while sitting on a bar stool you may be the most faithful member of your church and still be on your way to hell because you never gave your heart to the Lord. I believe the night God spoke to me, he spoke for the last time. I believe there would have been no tomorrow for me if I hadn't accepted Jesus that night. Three times God told Jeremiah not to pray for certain people Because there was no hope for them. Concerning Ephraim, he said Ephraim is joined to idols. God gave him up to his own sin. Do you love the idols of this world more than you love God? Suppose God should say, leave that person alone, conscience. Leave him alone, Holy Spirit. He's not going to repent and turn to me. Leave him alone. Do you know what is keeping you from God right now? It isn't the hypocrite you see in the church. It's sin. Do you know what's keeping some of you teenagers from getting right with God? It's your own lust. It's fornication, adultery, immorality, promiscuous sex. You love sex more than you love Jesus Christ. You love booze more than you love Jesus. And if you continue one of these days... God is going to say, you joined yourself to passion, to lust, to sin. Some of you are saying, after I've done my thing, I'll become a Christian. It doesn't work that way. You only come when God speaks or you never come. John six forty four says, no man can come to me except the father which hath sent me draw him. Then John 12, 39 says, therefore, they could not believe. Therefore, they could not believe. They had sinned away their day of grace. There are many of you who have made promise after promise to God, but actually all you've done is lie to God. In Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira lied and God killed them on the spot in first corinthians 5 5 paul said deliver such a one over to the devil for the destruction of the flesh in 1 john 5 16 it says there is a sin unto death and in hosea 13 9 it states thou hast destroyed thyself that is exactly what some of you are doing If we could show on a screen what some of you teenagers have done in the last three Saturday nights in the back of your cars, you would be ashamed. And some of you even carry a Bible under your arm. But in reality, all you have become a religious con artist. You don't have to live that way. Don't let religion keep you from a relationship with the Savior. Don't use the church. Get right with God now. Some of you listening to this may be standing in the way of other people who want to get right with God. If you would commit your life to him, many others would give their hearts to Jesus too. The whole church could come and square things with almighty God if you were willing to come first. At a large church in Houston, a young girl named Cynthia handed me a note from the choir. It said, "Freddie, my brother's in the service tonight. He's a friend of yours. He's come to hear you preach. I preached about hell that night. And when the invitation was given, I spotted Jack Long in the back. There were two more of my friends there also. One was Fred Shambliss and the other boy was Bobby Sutherland. I walked to the back of the auditorium and I put my arms around them. They were shaking under God's conviction. I said, man, give your hearts to Jesus. Give your hearts to Jesus. But Fred shook his head and muttered, I'm not ready. I looked over at Bobby and said, Bobby, will you give your heart to God? But he said, not tonight, not tonight, but, but I'll be back. I slipped out the side door of the church and met them. It had been sleeting and it was a very cold night. Fred was driving a brand new hardtop Oldsmobile. I got in the front seat and I asked where they were going. They told me they were heading to Austin. I knew immediately who they were going to see. And I said, man, guys, you don't want to go. You don't want to go. I begged them to stay, but they wouldn't listen. I was the last person to leave that church parking lot. And when they drove off, something inside me said, that's it. That's it. You're never going to see him again. Fred and Bobby just stepped across the deadline. It broke my heart. Well, they went to Austin. And they lived three nights in sin. But as they were coming back on Saturday night, they came to a curve in the road. They were doing about 80 to 100 miles per hour. A lady testified at the inquest that they were driving on the wrong side of the highway. They missed the curve right outside of Austin. And they hit a big oak tree. Fred was thrown from the car and ripped apart. Bobby was pinned in the wreckage. Pinned in the wreckage. His mind was blown on drugs and alcohol. It took five and a half hours to get him out of the car. I preached both of their funerals, closed coffins, one on the right, one on the left. As I stood to preach, John's mother came and fell on the coffin. She knocked off all the roses. She began to scream, my baby's in hell, my baby's in hell. I wanted to tell her he didn't have to go to hell. Mrs. Sutherland, he chose to go to hell. He chose sin, sex, drugs, and alcohol. He chose to go with the devil instead of Jesus. Later, I was preaching near Houston at the first Baptist church in Pasadena. And one of my friends named Joey came. We had grown up together every night for eight nights. Joey sat in the balcony of the church. For three straight nights, I walked to that balcony and I told him about Jesus. After the service one night, I took him over to the pastor's house and together we tried to lead him to the Lord. He was only 26 years old, but already he was driving a new Cadillac and he had these great looking alligator shoes and fancy clothes. I begged him to give his life to God. After the service, Joey went by to see his mother and told her, I'm going to get religion. But he didn't understand that he didn't need religion. He needed to give his life to Jesus. He already had religion. He belonged to a Catholic church. The last night of the crusade, we saw over 200 people saved in one service alone. Joey stood in the back, sobbing. My wife went back there and pleaded with him to give his life to God. She said that he had a Bible in his hand. He almost tore it up from being under such conviction. She said that sweat just poured from his body. A local pastor and I stood before a judge in Houston a few weeks later. He was about to send Joey to the penitentiary. The pastor knew the judge and helped convince him to put Joey on 10 years probation instead. Joey made a lot of promises during that time, but he never gave his heart to Jesus. A few weeks later, he stole an automobile and left Galveston with four other young people, all spaced out on drugs and alcohol. Joey was my friend. He told his mother, I know Freddie loves Jesus. I know Freddie's for real. She had replied, Joey. Joey. Why don't you go talk to him then? But instead, he left Galveston in a stolen car. He was going about 100 miles per hour when he hit an embankment, and he was thrown through the windshield of the car. He ended up 40 feet away in a ditch. He and his four friends were killed instantly. I preached three of the funerals, and another Houston pastor preached the other two. I believe God had spoken to Joey and his friends for the last time. I know 47 tragic stories of people, family, and friends of mine who committed the unpardonable sin. They all stepped across God's deadline. I tried to reach my 24-year-old cousin Dean for God. He was hooked on drugs and was a compulsive thief. He stole everything he could get his hands on just so he could pawn it later. I called a well-known preacher once and I said, Sir, I have a relative who's hooked on drugs. I've carried him all over the country and preached to him constantly. I even took him to hear Billy Graham every night at the Astrodome. Every night. But he would always say, I'm not ready. Listen, I believe he would come to your church if you would give him a job. Maybe your men and the church could, could you know, Pray him to God. Well, my cousin did go to that church and they did give him a job. The men there began to pray with him and tried to help him, but he just used that church. He conned them out of money again and again. Finally, he moved back to Houston. Late one night, my uncle said, Freddie, Dean is dead. They found him less than an hour ago. Someone pitched him out of my moving car at the uh, Houston waterfront. They just tossed him out. Apparently, he had overdosed on drugs and the the pushers, the addicts, man, they they just threw his body out. He hit the pavement, then he hit the curb and Freddie. His body was scattered all over the highway. I preached my cousin's funeral. His little boy cried all the way to the cemetery and all the way home. And he kept saying, my daddy went to hell. My daddy went to hell. That boy later developed emotional problems because of that experience. But the tragic truth in all of this is that my cousin chose to go to hell. Some of you who are reading this are choosing to go to hell. And one day, God is going to say, that's enough. If that time should come, it will only be because you kept turning your back on God, not because he didn't love you or reach out to you. My grandfather helped raise me when I was growing up. My parents were divorced when I was five. And until I was 17, I lived with my grandfather. I practically worshipped him. I called him Big Fred. He owned a beer tavern in Houston called Fred's Place. It was actually a dive. When I got saved, I led many people in his tavern to Jesus, including my grandmother. In fact, I baptized her. I also won my mother to the Lord and my stepfather. I led all three of my half-sisters to Christ, 28 members of my family in all. We used to go to Big Fred's bar and tell the customers about Jesus night and day. But we never could convince my grandfather to give his heart to the Lord. We sent many dedicated Christians to see him. We sent evangelists and preachers. I wrote him letters. I called him on the phone like late at night, burdened for his soul. But he wouldn't talk to me. We gave him a Bible. We gave him tracts. We tried to get him to watch gospel television shows, but he never tuned in. We tried to get him to listen to Christian radio programs, but he wouldn't. Not even when I was on a radio program. He just wouldn't listen. The Lord allowed me to preach over 200 revival meetings in South Texas. But Big Fred, he never came out. Not one time. I could never understand it. I was preaching in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Well, my wife called and she said, Freddie, big Fred has had a stroke and he's dying. I had several places where I was supposed to speak the next day, but I knew I had to get back to Houston as soon as possible. My grandfather's dying and going to hell. I told the preacher, I got to go back before it's too late. When I arrived in Houston, my wife took me straight to the hospital I got off the elevator on the fifth floor and I heard my grandfather screaming. The devil's coming. The devil's coming. Out in the hall, the doctors were talking with members of the family. Freddie, he's only got a few hours to live. I wouldn't disturb him, one doctor told me. But he's going to die and go to hell, I said. May I talk with him by myself? The atmosphere was so oppressive in that room. It felt like the devil himself was there. As my grandfather screamed, I began to quote scriptures about the blood of Jesus. All of a sudden, he became totally alert and started to calm down. Big Fred, I said, what has kept you from Jesus all these years? I gotta know. I gotta know. He looked at me and replied. Many years ago, when I lived in Omaha, Nebraska, a preacher came and preached for six weeks in the tabernacle. I was running liquor illegally in those days. And for six weeks, I felt God drawing me to him. But I always said, I'm not ready. I'm not ready to give my life yet. There's too much I want to do. My grandfather had heard a lot of preaching and he knew the Bible. He could always quote scriptures, but he wasn't interested in getting saved. He told me that on the last night of the meeting, as he walked out, he felt the Holy Spirit leave him. I turned back on God for the last time. I knew he was going to leave me alone after that. That's what he said. I turned my back on God for the last time. I knew he was leaving me alone. After that. Five hours later, I watched my grandfather die one of the most horrible deaths I've ever witnessed. I watched him die without God and slip into hell for all of eternity. I knew that he had chosen to go to hell. What a needless tragedy. The man who introduced me to my wife was a man named Sonny. We'd grown up on the streets together and were inseparable. He was both handsome and dynamic. When I got saved, I wanted Sonny saved too. My conversion made all the Houston newspapers and told of my efforts to lead others to Jesus. Sonny and I were close friends, and I wanted him to get saved like I had. His father was a Houston detective, but Sonny had been arrested 22 times. I talked to him about God every chance I got. One day, I took him with me on a plane to Texarkana, and I thought, Sonny's going to get saved, man. He's going to join my team. I just knew he was going to give his life to Jesus, but he didn't. He only cried and said, I'm not ready yet. He came for eight nights to hear me preach, but he never gave his heart to the Lord. He just said, I'm not ready yet. Later, 34 Baptist churches sponsored a tent crusade, which was attended by 3,000 to 4,000 people every night. One night, a pastor told me that Sonny was in the audience somewhere in the back. I spotted him and preached my heart out. Hoping and praying he would accept Christ. His wife had divorced him and taken their two precious little girls with her. Now Sonny was totally alone. I walked to the back of that tent, grabbed his hand, and said, Sonny, this is it, man. God's told me if you don't get right with him tonight, you're never going to do it. I stood there and I begged him to get right with God. He smiled, but I noticed he was bent over in the chair. And I asked, what's the matter? He told me after the service, he had just gotten out of the hospital. It took 168 stitches to saw up a stab wound he had received in a nightclub bra. Sonny, man, what is God going to have to do? I asked. We talked until four o'clock that morning. But all he said was, I'll be back. I'm coming Sunday morning. That Friday night, immediately after midnight, I received a telephone call. It was his sister, Marjorie. She was crying. Freddie. Sonny's been shot. He's dying, and he's calling for you. He had five bullet holes in him. He had been driving a new Cadillac, and he had 29 $100 bills stuffed in his front pocket. He'd been a pimp, and he thought he had everything he ever wanted. When I got to the hospital, detectives, news reporters, and television cameras were there. I walked into the room and saw his mother. The doctors were pumping blood into his body. He was barely conscious. Sonny, you're going to live, his mother kept saying. You're going to live. You're going to be a preacher. But Sonny just looked at me and said, Man, if you play, you pay. If you play, you pay. If you try acid and smack, you never come back. If you play, you pay. It's powerful, man. It's a powerful sermon. It's powerful that each one of those people, each one of those stories is is true. It's a true story. It's not make believe, that's not fiction, man. We're gonna talk more about this on upcoming episodes. This subject of how do we know our salvation is real? How do you know that you're really saved? You know, there are some biblical tests that we can take to examine ourselves. And I'll be sharing those with you on the next episode. Maybe two, maybe three. I don't know. Right now, think seriously about what you've just heard. Are you saved? What are you waiting for? Are you going to say, not right now. Later. Tomorrow. I need some more time. Some things I want to do. Really? Don't wait. Don't put this off. Today is the day of salvation. Jesus Christ is Lord. And he's calling to you. He's knocking at your heart's door. He's saying, quit playing games with me. Open up. Let me in. Surrender your heart, your mind, and your body to me. Follow me. I died for you on the cross. I shed my blood to cleanse your sins. I rose from the dead on the third day. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He's saying that. He's saying, believe on me. And you will not perish. You'll have eternal life. Don't blow off God's word. You don't know when you meet your deadline, when it's just too late. He's done. Think seriously about what you've just heard. And then for you, if you're a Christian, you're like, man, I know, I know I am saved. I know that I know that God really does live in me. Then let me ask you Is there someone you know who needs to be saved that you're supposed to be the one who's praying for them and trying to reach them? Then go do it. Go after them. I've tried, they didn't listen, and I've prayed for years, and it just seems like nothing's happening. I relate. I have loved ones just like that. I'm praying. I'm praying. I'm praying. When God, when are you going to wake them up? When are you going to draw them to yourself? It's like I'm talking to a rock, but I'm not going to stop. I'm going to keep trying, going to keep praying. I'm going to speak the truth. I'm going to speak it in love. And I'm asking God to show me when is the right time to speak? When's the right time to just be quiet and love that person Hey, guys, in case you forgot, right now, today, people die and go to hell, and they never get out. It's happening every single day. Wake up.